Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today is Theresa May's last day as leader of the Conservative Party in the UK. Where does the country go from here? On this side of the pond, Bill C-101 may change Canada's trade safeguard rules, but what risks does it carry? And a corporate communications survey has found that 54% of respondents say that the actions of the Doug Ford government have made them less likely to want to vote for Andrew Scheer at the federal election. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Today is uh, Theresa's, Theresa May's last day as the leader of the uh, UK Conservative Party. Uh, but that's not the end of her political career, not just yet, anyway. Joining us to talk about where the country is going to go and what impact this is going to have on Brexit and so many other concerns, uh, we're pleased to welcome to, uh, to the program Stephen Fielding, professor at the University of Nottingham, expert on British politics and uh, British political history. Professor, thanks as always. Great to have you back on the show today. My pleasure. I always enjoy our conversation. Well, it, it, there's an interesting distinction here because I know that it, it has been incorrectly reported in some circles over here in North America that she's resigning as Prime Minister. Not yet. She's still going to be the Prime Minister, isn't she? She is, yes. I mean, um, she has to resign as party leader, Conservative party leader, in order to allow the process of, re- of, of electing her successor. Um, but, um, you know, she, she continues as Prime Minister, although she, you know, she's not exactly going to be able to, you know, launch a nuclear war. Um, <laughs> you know, she, she's got very, very, very um, constrained power. She, she's not going to do anything um, now. I mean, she's basically hanging on as Conservative Party leader, I think, for the Trump visit. Um, so, you know, she's just a caretaker. Well, actually, uh, given the the track record of what's happened over the last eight or nine months, your, your description there is pretty much a description of the way she's governed over the last little while. I mean, she's had her hands tied anyway, hasn't she, Stephen? Um, yes. I mean, she's basically had her hands tied ever since she became Prime Minister. Um, there's a satirical magazine in Britain that maybe some of you listeners might have heard of called Private Eye. And yeah, yeah. the issue that, that coincides with her departure, their, their cover was um, Theresa May's legacy, and it's a blank front cover. So she hasn't really been able to do anything. I mean, she had she had one basic job, which was to deliver Brexit, and she failed, um, as, as, as we all know, um, many times trying to get her deal through the House of Commons. Um, she, she did try um, something. She started off quite well, um, because many people thought that the Brexit vote was a result of a lot of people in kind of poorer working-class areas of the country being very alienated from, from society, and that was one reason why they voted to leave. So she, she said, it, um, when, when she had won the leadership first speech as uh, Prime Minister outside Number 10, that she was going to try to you know, address those issues to, to help the just-about-managing people, as she called them. And she outlined a really interesting agenda about trying to maybe redistribute some power at work and you know, address some of the real issues about austerity in the country, maybe reverse some of the things that her predecessor had done. But then it all kind of went awry because Brexit just dominated her agenda. And, and she made the big mistake of calling a general election and losing it, which you can't, you know, that ever since then, ever since 2017, people have really been describing her as a sort of dead man walking, a zombie prime minister. So today, the fact she's actually stepping down as Conservative Party leader, there's no... You know, it's like she hasn't been that she hasn't been Conservative Party leader for quite some time. In e- fact, even within her own party. Yes. Well, there was there was an attempt just before Christmas. Yeah, I remember that non-confidence motion. Yeah, yeah, and and she just about squeezed through that. But even but and and that was meant to give her 
um, a year's respite because the rules of the Conservative Party were that you you know if, if you don't if you don't get rid of your leader um, in, in a no confidence vote, then you can't have another one for another year. But 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 within within a couple of months, they were trying to change the rules so that they could do it again. So she's her authority really ever since the 2017 election. I mean, you don't there aren't many prime ministers that can. Um, Five and prosper after calling an, un- an unnecessary election and then losing their majority. They, not, not many survived with greater authority after that, and, and she certainly didn't. Well, I can still remember the day of the non-confidence vote. I, I was working out, but I had my headphones on. I was listening to BBC. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, if, if, if there's one thing I can say in hindsight, Stephen, uh, her tenure, the three years or so that she was uh, in the corner office there, uh, it was never lacking for drama, was it? Well, no. I mean, the, the whole Brexit thing. I mean, Brit- Britain is. I mean, whoever was prime minister was going to find it difficult. I mean, David Cameron chose to walk away. Um, one of the reasons why um, she was prime minister and well, leader of the party and therefore prime minister for so long was, I think, most of the people like Boris Johnson, who, although they said they disagreed with what she was doing, were just basically waiting for her to get the first stage of Brexit out of the way, and then they'd go in for her. And unfortunately for them, the ones that, whoever succeeds her, she still hasn't managed to get rid of it, so they'll have the same mess. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been a traumatic time. And like I say, some, I, I don't know which, who could have done much better than her, but she certainly took a bad situation and made it worse because of the way that she went about things. She was, she was, when she was Home Secretary, she was one of the longest-serving Home Secretaries in, in, in modern British history. Um, she was known for just powering on through. You know, whatever she wanted to do, she would do it. She would not listen to people. She would not. She, she would not seek compromises. She would just ignore ignore anyone that all the naysayers, and she would do what she wanted to do. And that is an effect what she did as Prime Minister with Brexit. And that was really a situation which needed compromise within her own party. I mean, her own party is deeply divided over it, but also with other parties because the vote was only forty. Um, 852 um, in favour of, of leaving. So it was, Britain is a divided, a divided society over that. And it is even more divided because it's just gone on and she's failed to, to solve it. We expected to have some pushback, obviously, from well, the, the Nigel Farage's and, and, and Jeremy Corbyn's, etc. But the turmoil within her own party was was one of the very fascinating subtexts of this whole thing. Uh, you know, resignations from cabinet uh, because they they just they thought she was unwielding and just wasn't going to mm. listen to anybody else. And, uh, is that politics as usual, or was was this very different uh, the way she ran her her government? Well, the, the, the problem for her was. Um, she called, she called this general election in 2017. Everyone expected her to get a huge majority. And, and the reason why she called it is that she knew that she would need to have a big majority. She didn't have a big majority. She had about a majority of about 30 or so, I think, from, as a result of the 2015 election. But she knew that her own party was divided over Brexit. So she went to the country and said she was the only one that could sort it out, you know, back me so I can go and, I can go and knock Brussels out. Um, and she wanted a majority of like 100 or so. Um, and that might have allowed her to get her own way. She would have had enough loyal to allow for the divide, the divisions of the right party to kind of play out. And she, she'd have the numbers because the, you know, her, her big opponents are up to about 30 or so MPs. And she could have ignored them. Um, but she couldn't ignore them with, with without an actual majority, depending on, on the, on the, 
Democratic Ulster Unionists, who are who are one of the most extreme um, parties in in Britain. I mean, they don't they don't really have any comparators in, in on mainland Britain um, outside of Ulster. Um, so yeah, she the divisions in the party um, were made worse with her lack of authority and her lack of a majority. So so people were jumping off um, out of, out of the cabinet in unprecedented numbers. I mean, it was unprecedented how many people resigned or had to resign over other issues. It was it was a very unfortunate government over and beyond Brexit. Um, so yeah, the, the, you know, most most governments that suffer that number of resignations over such a crucial issue would have themselves resigned. I mean, you know, since since Christmas, she you know the, she she'd had her deal put to the House of Commons, and by the biggest majority ever, um, she lost. I mean, a government has never lost um, a vote with um, I think it was something like nearly three hundred votes. No government has ever lost. Um, a vote on those numbers. And it wasn't a little issue. It was the most important issue of the day, and she still clung on. So the fact she's kind of staggered on through three years, um, and certainly the last the last year or so, is a kind of remarkable a remarkable thing. But it says as much about the uh, her own kind of um, stubbornness as it does about the, the way in which the British political system has just ground to a halt. Stephen, given the... Uh... <laughs> the minefield that she's been walking through over the last three years politically, uh, who'd want the job? I mean, you know, there's going to be leadership. It's going to come pretty quickly, I guess. There's a deadline coming up. Uh, I mean, and, and there's a process in place here, too, that maybe you could describe. Uh, as I understand it, you have to have eight members of your of your caucus supporting you before you can even put your name up for nomination. Well, yes, you do. You, yes, to be nominated, to, to be to actually enter the race, you need eight votes. Um, which actually isn't isn't is an incredible number, um, given the Conservative Party amounts to just over three. Now we're starting to we got him back. Oh, yeah, yeah, a bit of a breakup here. All right, with uh, Stephen Fielding here from uh, Nottingham. Uh, I think we've got him back on. Yeah, some a bit of a breakup here. That, but this is uh, going to be an interesting process to understand just how this is going to have an impact uh, on what's happening politically in the UK but in a number of other things. Okay, we've got Stephen back there. We just had a bit of a drop-off there, Stephen. You were explaining the uh, the electoral process for the new leader. Well, you, they, they do need um, eight, eight fellow MPs to nominate them to enter the race. And um, there's about 11 that have, have declared. Not all of them are going to get eight. Um, so so there is a, there's at least 11 Conservative MPs who, who do want to become Prime Minister, who are mad enough to want, want to do that. I mean, there's only about three or four that have got a reasonable chance, and everybody thinks that Boris Johnson, as last time in, in 2015, um, is, is the leading candidate. And he's had the most MPs um, to declare publicly for him. But that's, so, so there's going to be lots of rounds uh, where, where the lowest person is going to be eliminated and some will probably re- sort of drop out the race anyway. But it's going to take two weeks for the party through a you know, series of exhaustive ballots to get to two candidates who will then, if then be put to the Conservative Party membership, and they will ultimately decide um, who, who, who becomes their leader and therefore who becomes Prime Minister. And there's, there's about 150,000 of them, which is not a lot of people. Um, and we all know what they think about the big issue of the day because they've been surveyed, as you might imagine, by lots of people. And they, they're quite happy to have a, a no-deal Brexit. They're, they're very hard-line Brexiteers, so whoever wins has to appeal to them. Uh, Boris Johnson, as you mentioned, of course, is well known on this side of the ocean as well. He does a lot of media over here. 
uh, and pretty mm-hmm. outspoken. I think that's an understatement. Uh, so he, he may be the most well-known uh, of the names that are being popped around, but I've heard names like Esther McVeigh and, and Rory Stewart, uh, who are members yeah. of this uh, cabinet as well. Do they have the political chops to stand up to a guy like Boris Johnson? Well, Esther McVeigh, um, I mean, is, is, is way out there. I mean, she, she's, um, she'd probably agree with absolutely everything that Boris Johnson says, but, but would want more. I mean, she isn't going to be she, she isn't going to be um, the, the next leader of the Conservative Party. You think she? Because some, some of them are standing to, to promote their name and hopefully get promoted um, by the new leader. So they want to establish a presence. And Esther McVeigh is one of those. She's gotten through a bit of trouble um, saying various controversial things, but she, she wants to get noticed. And Rory Stewart, who you've mentioned, is quite the re- quite the reverse. He's, he's much more um, much more moderate, a liberal kind of one nation conservative. And there, there aren't many of those these days. So he, he's really doesn't sound much of a chance but maybe he hopes to get promoted um but when but if and when boris johnson becomes prime minister um becomes the new leader he'll, he'll be given a fair wind by, by anybody by everybody in the conservative party i think because um if who, whoever is the new leader always gets a little bit of a honeymoon mm-hmm. so he's he's going to push the party i, I think in in the direction that most of them want to go in anyway because he's talking about going to Brussels, banging the table, getting a better deal. And if we don't get that, we're out on the 31st of October. And that's, that's really catnip to most Conservatives. Is, and that's going to be an interesting dynamic if, in fact, it does turn out that way and Boris Johnson does become the Prime Minister. Uh, is, is he going to be able to accelerate that process with, with, the, with the EU in this situation? Because it seemed as if, I, I don't want to say the EU was patronizing with, uh, with Prime Minister May, but they, she didn't seem to be getting any traction with them. Well, um, but the point is that the EU has, it, has its red lines, and she, and she had her own red lines. And when you put all those different positions together, that's the deal that, that they came up with. Um, I don't know if they patronised her. I think they just you know, made it very clear that what, what their position was. And basically, they've got the whip hand. I mean, there's, you know, the EU is a, oh, yeah. a big organisation, and Britain is, is a relatively, you know, it's, it's a big single country, but up against the EU, its bargaining position isn't very strong, which is what a lot of people said um, during the referendum um, debate, that, you know, everybody was saying on the, on the Leave side, oh, it's going to be a great deal, it's going to be done very quickly. Well, it, nobody who knew what they were talking about thought that that was going to happen. So, so I think, I mean, the deal that she got, given the, the, the preconditions that she had put down and the EU, was, was not a, a bad deal. Really, it was about as good a deal as you possibly could get, and it's not at all clear how better a deal anybody else is going to get. Because the EU has said we're not. Now, this is the deal. You know, we spent two years doing this. We're not going to change it. And it's kind of almost like a fantasy that that that, but that all these conservatives are saying, well, we'll go to Brussels and we'll get a better deal. How? Um, if 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 the negotiating partner um, is saying, well, no, we're not going to. And even even if they were willing to even if the eu was willing to open negotiations again these aren't going to be concluded by the 31st of october so if it was going to be a serious process of renegotiation on this failed deal it would have to be extended britain's tenure in the eu would have to be extended yet again for maybe a year if those negotiations are going to be at all serious and that's actually what a lot of people think is going to happen um or or as, many, as, as Boris Johnson himself has said, now he may change his mind after he's been elected, or Britain will just crash out on the 31st of October with a no deal.
Of course, the other theory that we've heard, too, is that uh, they, they're pragmatic enough to understand that the EU deal actually was not that bad, uh, but they were using this, obviously, as a tool to get rid of uh, Theresa May, and that's, I guess, mission accomplished, isn't it? Well, yes. I mean, the, the, irony, the irony is, I mean, Boris Johnson, because, because the deal that Theresa May um, got from the EU was put to the House of Commons, was it three times? Yeah, four at, times? at least I lost, three, I lost, yeah. I lost, <laughs> I lost count. But, but he voted against it, and then he also voted for it. I mean, the last time it was put to the Commons, Boris Johnson voted for it. So, so, so Boris Johnson is kind of facing both ways. He could say legitimately, well, I did vote for it, and I didn't vote for it. So he, he's got a very flexible position. And also, Boris Johnson, although he has said at one point, we will be leaving on the 31st of October, deal or no deal, he is the kind of politician who is capable of just turning things around and just completely contradicting himself and being able to take people with him so i mean the rest of them the rest of the of the field are you know they're, they're they've got they've got their strengths they've got their weaknesses but there are very few um there, well there is nobody like boris johnson that's one reason why we all keep talking about him mm-hmm. um he, he's got this i wouldn't hesitate to say charisma but he's got he's got a facility to be able to say black is white and white is black and to take people, at least some people, with him. Yeah, we, we've, we, we, we've got a guy just south of us here in Canada on the other side of the border that does the same thing. I th- I'm sure you've heard of him. <laughs> Stephen, we're just about out of time. Always enjoy our conversations and your perspective okay. on this. Thanks so much for this today. Right, okay. Pleasure. Stephen Fielding, of course, from the University of Nottingham. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, some concerns about uh, Bill uh, C-101. This is uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau's uh, new legislation uh, that we told you about a couple of weeks ago that is supposed to be putting safeguards in place for the Canadian steel industry. Uh, obviously, the clock is ticking because there's only a couple of weeks left now before these guys go for their summer break. Uh, is this going to get passed? Is it going to be sufficient? I want to bring uh, Catherine Corbin back into the conversation. Catherine Cobden, rather, I'm sorry, who is the president of the Canadian Steel Producers Association. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for the time. I wanted to get your perspective on this. I'm glad you have some time to talk to us about this today. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Really great to talk to you again. Well, have you had a chance to peruse the the proposal here, what Mr. Morneau is talking about? Absolutely, absolutely. Thought you might. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And and, uh, what what we're pleased about this actual proposal is it will give the government the flexibility they need to put safeguards in place. Um, you might recall the safeguard discussion. We, we talked about it yeah. um, a while back, and, and essentially those are really important to the steel sector because they prevent imports from surging into our country, and so we really do need those in place. Um, but what happened when the government decided not to put those in back in April was we went into what's called like this two-year cooling-off period where we weren't able to get them back and, and reintroduced. So the legislation eliminates that problem. And so that's great because that means, you know, as things change, which things are changing so rapidly in the marketplace under the current circumstances, uh, that we really, really need those uh, the, the, at, our, at our disposal, basically. Why were they even taken out, in the f- or not included, I guess, more importantly, in the first place? I mean, because, as you say, this is ever-changing, and you don't know what's around the corner. I mean, I don't think anybody saw the, the steel and aluminum tariffs coming f- from Trump last year, but You're boom, right. there they were, and what an impact that had on the industry. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the type of thing. You know, I think when this legislation was crafted, which was a long time ago, the world was a very different place, right? And today, in 2019, 
uh, with our current circumstances globally, we need this tool. So, you know, we're glad that the government is taking the steps it needs to ensure that it has, you know, uh, uh, all of the sort of tools tools in the toolbox. And, and uh, now the most important part, though, is we actually have to be ready to use them. Um, and that's, uh, you know, it's all great to put the shiny new tool in the toolkit, but we have to use them to ensure that we do not, you know, have the effect of imports surging into our, our marketplace. Is the political will there to do that? I hope so. That's our <laughs> intent. Our, our, that's our message to all parties is not only do we need this legislation through the House very quickly, but we also need to be prepared and stand behind Canadian steel workers and Canadian steel producers uh, to ensure that this doesn't happen and uh, get those safeguards in place. I, I know there's some concern about the time frame because they've mm-hmm. only got a couple of weeks left to go on this thing, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't think any MP is going to stand in the way of this. They may have some questions about it, but I mean, if they block this thing before the House uh, rises, I mean, they do so at their own peril. I think if they block it, what they're doing is they're telling Canadians that they don't care about the Canadian domestic steel producers or the steel producing communities or the steel jobs, right? So I really hope you're right and believe that they must stand behind this legislation. But you know, politics being politics, we'll have to see. Well, there was some concern as to whether or not it was even going to make it onto the order paper with all the other stuff they want to do. There's that, uh, that pesky trade deal uh, between Canada and Mexico and the United States that uh, still has to get ratified, and they want to do that as well. But when you've got a majority, if the will is there, as, as you've seen over the years, Catherine, they, they can get it done. Yeah, there is a lot on the table, though, Bill, and I think that, you know, it's important for this dialogue to be happening. So I'd, it's great that you are following this file. Um, I think that all voices need to be there to say to our parliamentarians, get this done. Who are the players here? I mean, we obviously we think of the United States because of the tariff situation. Uh, China's got to be a player in this situation as well because of the illegal dumping and the concern about that. Uh, and, and the fact that we kind of get sucked into that vortex every time China and the U.S. start talking about steel. Yeah, there's that. And there's also the fact that overall, the global overcapacity of steel is uh, is huge. So it's not just China, it's Turkey, it's all over the world, frankly. There's all sorts of countries that have more steel uh, produced than there is market demand. And so what this means is as countries like the U.S. and Europe and others are taking all these measures to manage imports into their country, those uh, those basically are looking for a home, right? And Canada wide open without safeguards. So this is part, this links right back to the legislation in the sense that we need those safeguards to manage the imports. And uh, it's many, many countries that uh, have way too much steel than, than uh, what, what uh, you know, their, their own demand. That's typical of the market, though, isn't it? I mean, if, if we have our defenses down, as we did, mm-hmm. uh, they're going to find that out. I mean, the, 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 the other players that you've just described here are looking for an opportunity like that, wherever it's going to be. It's not that they were picking on Canada. We just, they picked on us because we were vulnerable. That's right. And I think our government has started to recognize that. Like about a month ago, they, they committed to taking strong action using all legal avenues. And this is one of them, this legislation we're talking about, but there's many others as well. So we need to keep our eye on this um, seriously. Uh, otherwise, this could be a very big problem from a Canadian uh, steel producers' perspective. Is there any anticipation here that there could be some pushback from some of these other players? I mean, uh, you know, that say, hey, wait a second, that's not fair. 
Well, there are there is there is a misunderstanding out there that there's not enough steel um, that they cannot be provided by other means, um, and that this is going to have an impact on you know pricing, etc. And our our message on that is we're prepared to to supply what the market needs. Um, and at the same time, safeguards don't stop imports, right? They just manage them so that they don't pour in, that they come in at a kind of managed level based on what has happened in the past. So um, I think there's a lot of misconception that has created some opposition to this um, by, you know, users of steel, but that's easily managed once they understand the facts. Speaking of managed, uh, with this in place, it's going to, obviously, it's going to, there's going to have to be some increased scrutiny here, too. Is is that part of this process? Because, you know, we wanted to get some clarity on that uh, to make sure that, uh, I'm not so sure, you know, we, inspectors at every port, but, I mean, uh, you don't want stuff slipping by here, I mean, and, and that's only going to make right. a bad situation worse. Absolutely. We really have to um, ensure that our trade system, that our, you know, import monitoring uh, system is as strong as it can be. Um, and, uh, you know, this is actually part of what Minister Morneau announced a, a month ago is, again, we have to look at all of these different aspects to make sure that things aren't slipping through the cracks. And, um, you know, you worry when there's an election coming that uh, distra- people will get distract- distracted and moved on to other issues. But um, our problems will, con- will persist if we actually don't follow through on these recommendations. Well, in past elections, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that may well have happened because people are going to say, oh, come on, steel industry, we're solid. That's going to be fine. But we've been burned. And, and, and you'd hope that's going to be front of mind for the, the MPs and for the, the people that are going to be administering this going forward. Well, and that's why I'm glad to have communities and steel workers and producers all working together. We can't. We have to make sure that it remains front of mind. Are, let's talk about the players here, and, and specifically, sure. if I could, Catherine, about North American players. Yeah. Uh, because if Turkey or China or somebody else wants to stop dumping deal steel, rather, uh, there's got to be a willing partner somewhere along the line. Yeah, so what's really interesting, as you, as you mentioned, you know, we got the 232 tariffs lifted. This was a fantastic deal, both for ourselves as well as for, you know, the, Amer- the Americans. Uh, <clears throat> those tariffs were having a terrible impact, as we have discussed before, on both sides of the border. But now what, the, what that agreement also demonstrates is that our largest trading partner, the United States, also understands there's a global overcapacity, right, and that it's a real issue and that we have to work together to make sure that we are protecting not just Canadian borders but sort of the North American uh, steel producers from this surge of foreign imports. So, you know, we, we do have now some big partners with us in helping to prevent this problem. And, and oversight, obviously, is going to be part of that. But, yep. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of like the, from the security standpoint, we have the five eyes. I mean, you, everybody working cooperatively, one country to another. And it's, uh, you know, just to give them a nudge and say, hey, by the way, something's coming your way. You better be careful about that. That's That's got to make for a more efficient system, I would think. Yeah, I think that that's kind of the type of thing that, you know, we're uh, we're looking at. How do we ensure that our system is as strong as possible? Um, you know, how do we make sure that we're monitoring everything that's coming into our borders, um, coming into our country at our borders? That is critical. Uh, and then there's, uh, excuse me, the, the metaphor here, but the elephant in the room, um, that's the Republican metaphor, I guess, down in the States, uh, <laughs> is that uh, Donald Trump still thinks, well, he was quoted on Fox News this morning, tariffs are a wonderful thing, is the quote. 
now, Donald Trump, uh, Peter Navarro, and Wilbur Ross seem to be about the only three people in North America that seem to feel that way. But it's obvious from what he's threatening to do with Mexico right now, Catherine, that he will, uh, you know, just arbitrarily impose these things, not even necessarily because of any trade concerns, but I mean, he's, he's using this stuff as a club right now. That's got to be a little concerning going forward that we could be down this road again. Yeah, well, we must remain diligent. I, I don't disagree with that. Um, I, I will say, though, that we are very happy that we have a deal on 232 lift for the sector that actually, as much uh, as it helps the Canadian sector, it, it helps Americans. You know, we had a retaliatory system in place that also hurt the Americans. Um, so it was just good for all of us to get these tariffs out of the way so we could get back to business in North America. Um, so that's that's sort of, you know, the that is the the... The effort, we want to make sure that we continue to have that. Of course, there's always a threat. There's a lot of unpredictability in the system. And that's partly why the things like what the government is introducing in this legislation, uh, you know, is so important because we don't know what's going to, as you mentioned earlier, we don't know what's going to happen next. Well, one of the things that we're anticipating is going to happen is the ratification, at least by Canada and the United States, uh, of uh, the trade deal, uh, whether it's CUMSA or USMCA. Or do, uh, that, that, that's one of the things they need to negotiate. What are they even going to call it? But anyway, uh, what is that going to do to, to, to the circumstance with the steel industry? If that does get ratified by all three countries, let's go down that road for a couple of seconds. Does it, does it offer you more of a comfort level to think, okay, I, we're, we're more on more solid ground now than we were before? Well, I think that, you know, we support COSMA. Um, we support it. We think that having, uh, you know, a, an updated free trade agreement uh, with our largest trading partner is an important thing. So um, from our perspective, it sort of doubles down on the point that we're a, an important trading partner with them and we have, you know, we have free trade. For us, the biggest issue was making sure those tariffs were removed before we went down that path. And so thankfully, that's where we're at. Um, so that gives us more of a, you know, clear path to lend our support to the ratification of this agreement and say, let's, let's, let's get it done. With the other element, since we're talking trade, is uh, let's talk Canada and China, mm-hmm. uh, which is a little, you know, on shaky ground now. There's a great deal of trepidation because of Huawei and a bunch of other things that are at play here. And uh, they're playing politics with it, which is rather disconcerting for us as we sit here and watch this, because we know that we don't want to get caught in the crossfire here. But that's a market that, that, that the Canadian industry has got to be looking at and saying, look, you know, we, we'd love to get a piece of that. You don't want them dumping stuff here. But the, the reversal of that is you'd like to have some sort of an agreement where you, that could be actually beneficial to your industry, too. Yeah, I think the, uh, the issue of how China and Canada work together in a trade agreement is, you know, it's pretty early days uh, yet. I think there's a lot of unknowns. Um, certainly, you know, as an industry overall, we support free trade, um, you know, and we'll leave it to our governments to figure out, our government to figure out how, how that one could work. I, I think that, uh, as I say, it's very early days on that discussion. There are lots of big, big, broader issues well beyond steel. Uh, around that conversation. So we'll have to keep an eye on that and see how that moves forward. But you'd like to be at the table at some point in the future, I would think. Well, if there's anything real, I suppose we're going to want, we're going to need to be because we have, you know, serious uh, concerns with uh, the Chinese steel producers and uh, their overcapacity issues. So we're going to want to keep an eye on that. Yeah, and as any negotiation, there's give and take, and you want to make sure that if they're given something that you're aware of it and what the ramifications are going to be. You bet. 
So that's that's going to be a concern. And for step one, they're going to have to start talking to each other. Yeah. Although we're hearing that the prime minister and, and, and the Chinese prime minister may actually be meeting in the next couple of days. So mm-hmm. maybe that's a good sign, too. So you, all in all, then, from the last time we talked, you're, you're, you're more confident that, this, uh, that the government's got your back on this? Well, I, you know, you, you can never take anything for granted. I think we must remain vigilant. We have to keep pushing, um, pushing the system. We can't be... Uh, complacent at all, especially now we're heading into a difficult sort of time in the election cycle in terms of uh, of people's distractions, as we talked about er- earlier. But, you know, we've had some, since we spoke last, we've had some, um, you know, some definite movements in the right direction, but there's a lot more work to be done um, around that import trade monitoring system you were mentioning, around the safeguard legislation, around additional things we can do to strengthen our trade remedy system. All of this, we have to keep going. So no, the job's not done, but things have improved. Uh, final point on this, because there's another player here that we haven't talked a whole lot about, but you certainly have, and that's the World Trade Organization mm. uh, and, the, and the parameters which they set too. Uh, are, are we copacetic with what they're doing here, or is there going to be some, some concern here? Oh, well, you know, I think that w- there's, there's a lot of um, broader conversations going on about the WTO, right? And to what degree does Canada need to adhere strictly to the WTO requirements under today's context? Again, back to what we discussed with the legislation, it's 2019 now, and a lot of things in on the trade world around the trade, you know, world have changed. And so we do need to understand: can, are the constraints under the WTO process uh, truly appropriate in today's world? And I think what you'll find from our perspective is they aren't. And we need to actually make sure that we have the that we can take the steps we need as a country to protect our to protect our our jobs and our economy. Because wasn't that protocol, the WTO protocol, that was almost 20 years ago, wasn't it, that, that, was, that Canada signed on to that, 1994, yeah. 95, something like that? Yeah, I don't have the precise date, but it certainly It's, it's was, a long time you know, ago. A long time ago, just like the legislation, right? I also don't have the precise date on that. But we are um, in really at a point in time where we need to look at our whole trade system, and that's you know what I'm encouraged about, what the steps I'm seeing. Now, we have, we have to go more, though, than just looking at it. We actually have to implement changes that give our government the tools that we need to respond to today's, you know, unprecedented, disruptive in- environment here. So um, that is the agenda, I think, for the for the, that that is the immediate agenda, and it's also the agenda that's going to need to, you know, pick up back in, you know, um, on an ongoing basis, whether there's an election or not. Is there a willingness or, a, or maybe even a recognition on the play, uh, part of the WTO that maybe they do need to revise and, and update some of their protocol? Honestly, I'm not connected enough to the WTO side of this, but definitely I think from our side, there's, you know, we need to take steps. And I think when you saw the announcement a a month ago of the federal government saying it'll look at all legal avenues, that's the important message here. And that includes, I'm assuming, looking at the WTO. Well, that's a pretty bold move by the government, though, isn't it? Hmm. To say, look, we're not going to wait for you. We're going to do this because it's in our best interest. Well, you know, I think other other steps have been bolder. So, you know, other countries <laughs> are taking even bolder action, and that's the point, right? Other people are, other governments around the world are taking very bold action that has a direct implication on Canadian jobs. You know, it's kind of funny to make that link, but it's there. So, this is why we need the legislation that Morneau has, has tabled, um, as well as additional things that. Uh, 
um, that are that need to be put in place to ensure we have a 2019 trade remedy system. Fingers crossed. Uh, the, right. t- the clock is ticking. Catherine, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time Thanks today. I'm sure we'll be talking about this again in the near future. All right. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Catherine Cobden, Bye-bye. who is the uh, president, of course, of the Canadian Steel Producers Association. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A little politics right now because a couple of polls have come out in the last little while, which are... Uh, well, not good news for uh, Doug Ford here in Ontario, and uh, not good news for Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, joining us to talk about these is Newer Al-Khadri, who is a professor at the Teffler School of Management at the University of uh, Ottawa, to uh, give us some perspective on this. Newer, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. Good morning. Uh, how are you? A couple of things. I'm, I'm doing well, thank you. I'm maybe better than Doug Ford is right now. Uh, I'm looking at a couple of polls. One, of course, is uh, the one that was released earlier this week, the Corbett Communications Survey that was done uh, on behalf of the Toronto Star. Fifty-four percent of respondents uh, say that uh, uh, they are less inclined to vote for Andrew Scheer in the upcoming federal election because they don't like Doug Ford and they don't like the association between the two of them. Uh, it, it, that may be kind of twisted logic, but it's not the first time we've heard something like that, is it? Well, it's not the first time that we hear uh, something like that, but uh, the, um, uh, people change their minds at uh, during election times. That's one thing. The second thing is that the majority of the people are not uh, very interested in uh, in elections, and uh, with these polls and these uh, questions, uh, you will see a, a lot of uh, changes. We've seen uh, Rachel Notley, for instance. She was very popular in, in the elections, and the NDP federally were not uh, very able uh, in 2015. The NDP were not able to to get any uh, any extra seats in uh, in Alberta. On the other hand, uh, even when uh, Justin Trudeau was enjoying uh, a honeymoon federally, uh, that didn't reflect provincially on uh, his friend uh, uh, Kathleen Wynne. So th- that uh, synergy or the association that exists between uh, federal and provincial politics gets broken down during election time because uh, of the local MP or candidate that is running, because of the... Um, um, more interest that people show in the election back then uh, because of the dissociation that exists between the federal and provincial politics. So Andrew Scheer would suffer a lot if he keeps his close ties with Doug Ford in the, in the election campaign and he campaigns with him. If Andrew Scheer is, uh, is smart, he would tell Doug Ford to stay away from me now. Well, there's an interesting twist on that that we'll get to in a couple of seconds, Noor, because historically we've seen this. I mean, uh, when Dalton McGinty instituted his health tax here, there was a federal election not too long after that, and uh, it did not go well for the Liberals here in Ontario. Uh, I I get the sense, and we've seen other examples of this, and you've just touched on a few of them too, that when people get angry at at, at a politician or at a party, uh, they don't care if you're federal or provincial. If it was a liberal that did it, they don't want liberals. And and I know that anybody who's knocked on doors in an election has found that to be true. I mean, and if you say, whoa, whoa, no, that's the federal party. They don't want to hear that. They're just angry. And, and oftentimes they'll direct their anger at who's ever at the door asking for their vote. Yeah, well, um, uh, this uh, this will bode well for, for the NDP and, uh, and the Green in this election. Because mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not dismissing any effect on that. There will be some effect, but it's not, to that, it's not that detrimental. But uh, people will not vote for Andrew Scheer. And uh, Justin Trudeau is, is not very well liked uh, these days after all his... Uh, shenanigans and scandals, um, you will see them that go and go for the alternative. And, and the Green and the NDP are well poised to take uh, on uh, on a lot of that uh, lead in, uh, in Ontario. 
And we've seen evidence of that already with a couple of the by-elections. Obviously, the Greens won one out in British Columbia. Uh, and, and we've seen it provincially here. Of course, we have one Green member, uh, Mike Schreiner from, uh, from Guelph. Uh, do you get the sense, Noor, that, that, that Canadians are ready to start embracing the Greens? Because this is a political movement, the party, the Green Party movement, uh, that has enjoyed pretty good success in other parts of the world, not so much here in Canada. Is, is, is that about to turn around? We, we're seeing that on the move. Um, one, one important thing in elections is uh, the, the leader's popularity, and Elizabeth May enjoys the highest out of uh, all the federal leaders uh, now in terms of positivity. And uh, that's going to translate into seats, uh, especially on uh, in, in the Vancouver Island and, and British Columbia. Um, and uh, we shouldn't underestimate uh, in some places that they might come uh, forward strong. Uh, and that's what uh, probably uh, has posed or pushed the NDP uh, to have a very aggressive uh, environmental plan and platform to be put forward. And uh, the announcement from the NDP on the, uh, on the Green uh, platform uh, is going to be, a, uh, again, a, a very good position for Jagmeet Singh and his, and his, and his NDP to um, prevent the, NDP, the Greens from taking all uh, that, uh, that support. So they're going to divide both uh, that, that progressive support, especially on um, the progressive vote on the environment, and the protest vote that are not happy with, uh, with Justin Trudeau, but they're not seeing Andrew Shea as an alternative. And it is um, very bad for Andrew Shea at this time um, that after all what uh, the government has uh, has done, and he's supposed to be a government in waiting, that he's not able to translate this uh, heavily in the polls. We see them in statistical tie most, uh, most of the time recently. And how much of that is, is because the opposition have been able to define him? There's that old axiom in politics that if you don't tell people who you are and what you are, the other guys are going to do it for you. Uh, we certainly saw them do, the, you know, the conservatives did that to Michael Ignatieff and, and to uh, Stefan Dion. Uh, so there was this negative perception in, within the public about these guys before they even started you know, going on the campaign trail. Uh, we've seen the TV ads about Sheer. Uh, and, and the characterization that they've tried to make him, that he's going to be just like Doug Ford, just like uh, Donald Trump, for that matter. It, does that resonate with voters? Well, uh, it's not going to resonate with voters, but because the Doug Ford got elected, Donald Trump got elected. If he's going to be like them, he's going to be elected. But, uh, but the, idea, the idea is that um, and there is a big populist movement on uh, on that, and you see there's a lot of people that, uh, that don't think far, and they say, okay, well, uh, they buy the narrative of the conservatives about carbon tax and about uh, uh, all these things that uh, are anti-environment and, uh, and, uh, and reducing taxes and all this. But uh, they don't look at the, the other face of the coin and say, okay, well, we're, this is going to happen on the, on the backs of the middle class. This is going to be happening on uh, the backs of cutting services for, for the people and making the poor uh, poorer. Um, so... Um, some uh, people in the progressive movement, if they can take um, the examples of Ford and Donald Trump and uh, use it very well in the elections, uh, they're already using it in uh, in some of the ads. But during election times, if they can uh, draw the parallels properly, that's what changes people's mind. A lot of the people, and there are lots of polls to support that, changed their mind in the last two weeks. And we've seen this, like, uh, you've got parties that had the hopes of a majority 
government, and in the last two weeks in the elections, they lost that hope, and they, they lost seats. We've seen it in Quebec with Pauline Marois. Uh, we've seen it in the last federal elections. It was a three-way race, Liberal, Conservative, NDP, and two weeks later we had a supermajority government, and the NDP lost it. So uh, the, those polls don't mean a lot of things. Well, they say they, they are... They are signals yeah. for the political parties to take action. They say a week uh, is a lifetime in politics, and we, there's a few weeks left, isn't there, before we actually have to vote. Noah, we're yeah. just about out of time. I really do appreciate you taking some time for us today. Always, always a pleasure. Always a Take care. That's Noah Al-Khadri, of course, from the University of Ottawa. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.